Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Corporal Anthony Casamento. Casamento was serving as a squad leader within a machine gun section during the Battle of Guadalcanal in the Second World War. He was serving with Delta Company, part of the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. That's rolled up under the 1st Marine Division. And the actions we're going to talk about today happened specifically on November 1st, 1942. Now, to back it off a little bit and talk Guadalcanal and kind of where we sit in the war, this is really very early in the in the Second World War and, and definitely in the Pacific Theater. So the United States was propelled into war with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. The and be careful how I say this. The first major offensive ground operations that the United States takes after Pearl Harbor is going to be on Guadalcanal when we land American forces in August of 1942. So that's eight months. Now, the, the reason I had to be very careful with how I said that is there was other ground combat, right? There was still fighting going on in the Philippines, or um, there had been fighting in the Philippines when when the Japanese attacked right after Pearl Harbor. Guam had fallen. There was there was fighting on the ground at Guam, but it wasn't much of a fair fight, and it certainly wasn't a offensive U.S. operation. We were still kind of reeling from Pearl Harbor when the news of the Philippines and Guam started to come back. It was during this early portion of the Second World War where the hits kept coming, and it was bad news after bad news after bad news. So the U.S. is is you can imagine, just imagine wanting to take the fight back, wanting to stop, just stop the bad news, just stop the losses. And there are certainly some American victories in this window. We have the famed Doolittle Raid where we send bombers over Tokyo to really just kind of, it's it's a quick victory maybe is a way to put it. Risked a lot of lives, but it was a way to say, hey, Japan, you're not invincible and a big, a big morale boost in the United States, right? Very early after Pearl Harbor. Then we had the battle of Midway, a major U S victory, a a big turning point in the war. Really. If you're talking about this backward slide of the United States, can't win, can't win, can't win. Midway is kind of one of those points where it starts to shift a little bit. And Midway was in June. So I mean, well, heck let's say June, you know, even the six months after Pearl Harbor, think of Think of the state the country was in, the morale, and we're trying to build up the American forces, but maybe it's a lot different today, but I don't know that we have to, it seems incredible that the United States had the patience to say, just wait, we're building back our strength. We're, we're, we're building the force. We're coming. And, uh, and they did. But, but in, in, in comparison, I want to bring up the attacks on 9-11 and when we put troops on the ground in Afghanistan, because I think it's similar in the sense that we didn't know it was coming. We had to build a force. We had to build deployment packages. We had to move people around the world. And we had CIA operations folks on the ground barely two weeks after the 9-11 attacks. Now, that wasn't as broadcast, especially not at the time. And it would be a little over a month, about five weeks. I want to say it was mid-October that Army Special Forces teams started to insert across Afghanistan. And that was fast. Right, it was really, really fast. And if we look at the war in Afghanistan after 9/11, it was incredibly quickly 
getting there and, and all that. But nonetheless, I remember people were chomping at the bit, like, what are we going to do? So we're, you know, there's airstrikes and there's rain, like there were still things happening and that we could say we're, we're kind of taking the fight to the Taliban, to Al Qaeda, not as easily done in the second world war, but man, we were just patient and we waited and we built up. Eventually by August of 1942, there's a, the, the, the decision has been made. We're going to start this offensive to start to take, I'm going to say take back islands. A lot of these islands weren't necessarily, you know, not held by the United States. Some, some were, um, you know, allied with the United States. So we'll say, you know, maybe take back the Philippines, right? Cause that was a very, very close U S ally. So we're going to take back control of that. Um, but places like Guadalcanal and some of these other areas, they weren't necessarily under U S control or the British control. Um, but they also weren't under Japanese control until they landed troops on the Island, fortified them and started building airfields. And that's a red flag. That's the thing that we can't allow. We, the United States, the allies can't allow. And the reason that Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands, really in the South Pacific, catch our attention is they're starting to um, create airfields and harbors. There, there are natural and, and some creation of artificial harbors, but there's airfields on this series of islands in the Solomons. And the Solomons are really like a shield, like a barrier to Australia. And if you're, they sit northeast of Australia, Australia, New Zealand. And if you were to go directly from the United States to Australia back and forth, or even Hawaii, you're running into the Solomons. So if the Japanese have any size, any size force there that can disrupt, destroy um, shipping, transport, aircraft, anything, it's a problem. We got to open up, you know, we're, we run the risk of being cut off from one of our major allies in the conflict, especially in the Pacific. We have to maintain that line of communication. We have to make sure that that is a secure travel route. So in turn, the Solomons move up the list in terms of where we're going to take action first. It kind of allows us to take the Solomons and start to, you know, cartwheel north up towards Japan. Because this is really South Pacific. It's pretty far south of, of the Japanese mainland. There's a series of islands in the Solomons. And in fact, Guadalcanal, although it's one of the largest islands, isn't on the initial list to be invaded because you got to focus on other areas where there might be more Japanese troops um, or, you know, most certainly airfields. But eventually we see that the Japanese are building airfields there um, and they're, they're occupying the island. So we move, we decide, all right, Guadalcanal is going to be one of the targets within this campaign. And of course, as we look back, when we talk about really the campaign across the Solomons, Guadalcanal is it. It has, it was such a long fight, such a nasty fight that that is kind of the picture of the entire Solomon Islands. But right out the gate, it wasn't one of the objectives. Nonetheless, Americans land on the island in August of 1942. So there we go. There's our eight month chunk. And we're in the fight, taking the fight to the Japanese. Something to remember during the Battle of Guadalcanal is this is our first fight. We're getting back. You know, it takes a little while to get into fighting shape. And we might have had eight months to build up, you know, maybe manpower and equipment, but we haven't, you know, the, the men of the first Marine division that are landing in Guadalcanal, very few have been under fire. And those who have, it's been a while. And I'm not sure that any that land in August of 1942 have been under Japanese fire. That I, I don't know for sure. Maybe some folks got out of, of some of these other areas, but but it's a green force in the sense that this is going to be their introduction to combat. And every war is different. Every island in the Pacific is different. 
So we got to get back in fighting shape, and that's going to take a little while. So pretty early in the conflict, the United in the conflict in the battle for Guadalcanal, the United States pushes inland and takes an airstrip that we rename Henderson Field, and it's going to be that toehold that we need. It's it happens on the the Normandy beaches. We have to get a certain ways inland so we can continue to bring in reinforcements. It happens across the Pacific, island after island. Whether it's a landing beach or an airfield, it's a no kidding. We have to hold this. This is our only way to maintain a foothold on this island. It's the airfield. Something that's interesting in the Battle of Guadalcanal is when we look forward. You know, or look, look later in the war, there's going to be fights that are determined ahead of time. We know that the Japanese can't reinforce. We know that they have a limited number of supplies. We know they might not have been resupplied for some time. We know we have naval and air superiority. In some areas, it's just a matter of how long and how deadly some of these fights will be, but we're going to win. That is later in the war. Guadalcanal is the first fight. When American troops land on Guadalcanal and for a few months after, it is a toss-up. It is a, I mean, we can dive into details and say, well, Japan was never going to win this or that. But at at the end of the day, during the Battle of Guadalcanal, the, the forces on the island were roughly equal, especially if you apply the fact that the Japanese are defending You generally need fewer troops to defend than to attack and take. The idea there is a defender can dig in, can create fields of fire, can wait. They don't have to expose themselves to enemy fire, whereas the attackers do. So there's there's fewer Japanese on the island, but over the course of the battle, not so many fewer like we're going to see later in the war. Air superiority, it's not a thing at Guadalcanal, not for a while. The naval superiority, in October... Of 1942, Henderson Field is shelled by Japanese warships. You don't often think about that. You don't often think about American troops on these islands coming under naval gunfire, unless it was friendly fire. But on Guadalcanal, two months, two and a half months after we landed, and we've been fighting on the island, the troops there are being shelled by Japanese warships. That's not naval superiority. That's not... You know, if you had air superiority, you wouldn't have naval, you wouldn't have Japanese ships close enough to, to fire on our troops. It's a different fight for those first few months. And in turn, what you see are the American forces on the island don't clear the entire island. It's big. Again, I can't overstress how important it is that everybody at every level is learning. We're learning our capabilities. We're learning the Japanese capabilities. We don't know if Guadalcanal is going to be a two-month fight or a four-year fight, right? There's plans but but this is it. We're all being tested. So what you see is the Japanese at this point, I kind of hinted at this, but I guess I'll say this outright. The Japanese were reinforcing the island. It's not something we would see later in the war when they would either lose the capability or the desire or, or for any number of reasons. They can reinforce Guadalcanal and they are reinforcing it substantially. They are, there are air raids overhead. American forces are being strafed by Japanese aircraft. And during the cover of darkness, Japanese forces are being landed in mass on the island. And around October, I want to say it was like mid, mid-October, there's a solid 15,000 Japanese that are brought to Guadalcanal. That's no joke. 
This isn't just a couple hundred reinforcements here or there. The Japanese are massing for an attack. When they land those 15,000 on Guadalcanal, again, they're landing on a friendly side of the island. The island's big enough. You need to have in mind that that on one side, the Americans kind of control it. And you got the warships out there, control-ish, right? Still coming under gunfire. On the other side, it's a relatively, well, it's held by the Japanese. So they're able to, to come and go with their ships. And in the middle of kind of these two forces, you've got this island called Guadalcanal, and that's where the fighting is happening. The Japanese land about 15,000 troops on Guadalcanal in October. This is the point when I'm talking about the troop strength start to, to come close to equal at various times. Now, at, it's not like the Marines landed 37,000 there and then walked away. There's a constant flow in and out. There's a constant flow with the Japanese. But in mid-October, looking back, that was the time. That was the time where the Japanese had close enough strength to the Americans, and they decided they're going to take advantage of it. They do think that there's fewer Americans on the island than there actually are. It's worth remembering here in a moment. And they force this offensive, and they say, we're going to take what? The most important thing to the Americans right now. We're going to take the airfield. We're going to kick them off the airfield. So there's a major offensive, major Japanese offensive launched. They push right up against the airfield and over the court, the fight fighting happens really during the last week or so of October in 1942. That is going to be one of the battles that um, we've talked about previously. We did a two part series on gunnery Sergeant John Bassalone. And during this battle of Henderson field, Bassalone famously um, hero of Guadalcanal man, a machine gun and, and just cut down incredible numbers. I mean, I saw numbers in the hundreds. I, I don't say it was over 200, dead Japanese troops in front of his machine gun position after all of his guys had been killed or seriously wounded. After that battle for Henderson Field, we saw the Japanese kind of, we'd seen it a couple times, but this was the big one in mass. They threw themselves at the American defenses and the defenses had been, you know, better and they're were, they were coming along, they're better and better. But nonetheless, the Japanese suffered very heavily. And the American leadership at this time decided we're going to push on the offensive. Now is the time to attack. And the idea with the attack is that the Japanese, it's kind of, when you're talking about major military battles, you, you don't want to give the enemy time to reset. So when you hear the term counterattack, often it is, think about yourself as you're fighting somebody. When you throw a punch, if you miss, you're off balance. You may be vulnerable. You might be tripping. Maybe your weight is, is off kilter. That's the idea with a counterattack in military terms. If you wait for that person to miss and then come back and reset, well, you might've missed your opportunity. But if you attack right after they have wrapped up their attack, they're not going to be ready to defend as well. That's the American idea by really the end of October after the battle for Henderson Field into November. And it's going to lead to some of the kind of last major ground conflicts during the Battle of Guadalcanal. There's a river on the western side of the airfield in Guadalcanal that separates. It's wide enough to where it's a bit of a challenge to cross. Um, and the Japanese are set in kind of in the hills and the marsh and the areas west of this river. And the Americans have a couple times kind of pushed west into that area. And it's not gone well. There's just so many Japanese forces dug in and fortifications and defensive positions. But after the battle for Henderson Field is decided... Let's go. We got to clear this area out because what's happening is the Japanese are staging there to continue attacking the airfield. So now the thought, again, the attack, counterattack, 
They just punched. They're not going to be ready to defend. They probably moved troops out of those areas to build up their attacking force. Let's go. And American forces start pushing west into that area. Involved in that attack is going to be Corporal Anthony Casamento. Casamento is a squad leader within a machine gun section. Now, a, mer- a Marine machine gun section at that point, there was one per platoon. Um, yeah, one per platoon within a Marine rifle company. Within the machine gun section, you would have two machine guns, and each one of those machine guns would have a four-man crew, and then there'd be a couple other people um, in the headquarters. Casamento's job was to lead one of those two crews within the overall machine gun section. And the reason I bring this up is we watch movies and, and play video games and you see, you know, a person running around with a machine gun and it's possible just because you can pick up a weapon and move with it. Doesn't, doesn't mean that that's the best use of that weapon system. The, the weapon that they're going to be using, the machine gun that they're going to be using here on Guadalcanal is the M the M nineteen nineteen alpha four M one nine one nine a four. Most likely they moved through a couple different variants here. But nonetheless, that's a 30-pound weapon system. It's awkward. It has to be fired, should be fired from the ground on a tripod or a bipod. It can be mounted on a truck or even in airplanes. Um, But it's also called a crew-served weapon. And that's a term we see in the military often, crew-served weapons. And the idea is you have a team to help operate that. Because you might be able to carry a 30-pound machine gun, and that's great but that bipod might weigh 20 pounds or tripod might weigh 20 pounds or more. What about the ammo? Who's going to carry 60, 70, 80 pounds of ammunition? Next thing you know, you've got three or four man machine gun teams to help utilize this incredibly lethal, incredibly important piece of equipment. Casamento is a squad leader leading a machine gun team. So he and his men, the company is tasked with pushing west across this river. They're going to, they're, they're across the river at this point. They're tasked with pushing further, kind of assaulting into enemy positions. And what they do is they tell Casamento and his section to move ahead up to this ridge line, set in a, I was going to say defensive position, a firing position, kind of. It's not the right term for machine guns. Um, but they're going to set up a position to overwatch his company as they move forward, advancing into enemy lines. All right, so machine gun section moving forward, set in. Again, they're not going to be as fast and as maneuverable as infantrymen running around with their their rifles. So push the machine guns forward to start. Casamento and his men and his section, we're talking about 13 men in a machine gun section. They push forward, and as they're getting set up, come under heavy, heavy Japanese fire. In short order, the entire section is either killed or seriously wounded. And that includes Casamento. So when I say seriously wounded in this context, you know, it it, it can mean any number of things. In this context, what it means is unable to operate their weapon systems. So very shortly, you have 12 out of 13 killed or so seriously wounded they can't operate the machine guns. You have one person still seriously wounded, but somehow able to keep up the fire. So with these two machine guns in place, remember Casamento's in charge of one. There's still an entire other machine gun squad that he's, or yeah, another machine gun squad within the section that's going to be nearby. Casamento's going to take over these weapon systems. And remember, we were talking about these being crew served. It's because they're most effective in that manner. Again, it doesn't mean one person can't do it, but it becomes challenging. It's not as effective. But what you see here is Casamento severely wounded, 
moving to the machine gun, holding down effective fire on the enemy positions that they came upon. And he's reloading. He's moving the machine gun. He's setting up the tripod. He's moving the other gun if needed, as needed. He is doing the job of two or three, despite being wounded. Now, when I say doing the job, it's if he just got on the machine gun and started pulling the trigger, it's one thing. But what he did by staying in that position was his company, Delta Company, was one of multiple attacking across the front. And if he can't hold that position, it exposes the flanks of their two adjacent companies to these enemy positions ahead that have knocked him and his section out. So when I say that he did the job of four or of maybe eight or maybe 13 in the entire section, he destroys one of these machine gun nests that they came under fire from. Machine gun to machine gun battle, right? Knocks that one out. Neutralizes the other. At the very least, suppresses it to where they can't lay down effective fire. And in turn, protects the exposed flank of the two companies to the left and right. He does this long enough. Again, I want to stress, severely wounded, with no support from his guys because they are all dead or severely wounded. He holds this position long enough, even with a couple Japanese soldiers attacking from time to time. Holds it long enough for his company that's assaulting to come up, relieve him, evacuate him because of his wounds, and carry on the assault. So one man holding down that position, allowing his company to assault through and continue the advance. Now, Casamento is evacuated, treated for his wounds, would survive the war. We didn't have an eyewitness for what he did. The idea, the thought, maybe is the way to say it, is that that entire section was killed. The thought was that there were no eyewitnesses to attest to his actions, which means to a degree, it's very challenging to write an award. That's one of the challenges with the Medal of Honor, right? Somebody has to see it. You can't just, you can't just come back by yourself and say, let me tell you what I did. There has to be some way to verify it. In 1964, two men step forward and say, I was there. I saw it. I know what he did. Now, I, I looked for the details on this quite a bit, but what it appears to have been is two Marines that were severely wounded and in and at the time, the thought was they may not have survived the battle, may not have survived the day but in fact did step forward and said, I saw what he did and, and provided testimony to Casamento's actions. That was in 1964. And then in 1980, Casamento finally was awarded the medal of honor for his actions on November 1st, 1942 during the battle of Guadalcanal. This is when corporal Anthony Casamento holds the line allowing his company to continue their advance, protecting the flanks of the two adjacent companies when his entire 13-man section goes down dead or wounded from incredibly deadly enemy fire. Casamento holds that line, allows the advance to continue, and 38 years later, for that action, will be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.